Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, corporate news media would like you to be alarmed about an extraordinary breach of privacy. It's the privacy of the institution of the Supreme Court, which one CBS expert told viewers has been dealt a body blow by the leak of a ruling overturning the landmark Roe versus Wade decision that allows the right to terminate a pregnancy to remain between the pregnant person and their doctor. Corporate news media are in high dudgeon about protecting people from invasions of their right to privacy. But again, mainly if by that you mean protecting Supreme Court justices and their right to never be confronted by people who disagree with the life-altering decisions they make. You almost wouldn't think the real news of the past week was the nation's highest court declaring that more than half of the population no longer have bodily autonomy. That's to say now have less control over their own body that a corpse has, since people can refuse organ donation after their death, even if that would save another person's life. Elite media are interested in abortion as an issue, as a thing people talk about, but that it's not understood as a human right is clear from reporting, years of reporting, that suggests that for them, It's most importantly a partisan football, and any fight over it needs to give equal and equally respectful attention to both sides, even if one of those sides is calling for human rights violations. We'll talk about that with FAIR's Julie Holler. Also on the show, in corporate media land, it's controversial that people be allowed to determine whether or when they give birth, because after all, we care so much about the birthed. That sounds sarcastic, but it's the underlying premise of coverage of the shortage of baby formula, which incorporates an implied shock at the denial of basic health care, with another implied shock that somehow capitalism doesn't allow for all infants to be treated the same. There's really no time left for pretended surprise at system failure in this country. But we can still talk about journalism that shines a light on that system failure rather than an obscuring shadow. We'll talk with Tesneem Zakaria from Popular Information about applying a public interest prism to, in this case, the story on the baby formula shortage. That's coming up. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Western media coverage of the death of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akhle, shot by Israeli defense forces on Wednesday while covering an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin, demonstrated a careful pattern of avoidance of implicating Israel. Abu Akhle was wearing a blue press vest and helmet and standing with five other clearly marked journalists when a sniper shot her near her ear where the helmet didn't cover. 
On Al Jazeera for over two decades, Abu Akleh's work was known for giving a voice to Palestinians living under brutal occupation forces that have killed upwards of 50 journalists since the year 2000. Beth Miller, director of Jewish Voice for Peace, described as unbelievable a New York Times headline that said that Abu Akleh, quote, dies at 51, close quote. No one reading that headline would imagine that her death was not the result of natural causes, but a targeted assassination. In another Twitter post, the New York Times attributed Abu Akleh's death to clashes between Israelis and Palestinians using a long-criticized phrase that obfuscates the systematic violence and asymmetric power relations of the Israeli occupation. The Associated Press's headline read, Al Jazeera reporter killed during Israeli raid in West Bank. And the BBC, NPR, CNN, NBC, and the Wall Street Journal all parroted that language, stating that Abu Akleh died during an Israeli raid or military occupation, without mentioning that she was killed by Israeli forces. Hint Hassan of Vice News took to Twitter to respond to the coverage. She said, quote, if a journalist is shot and killed in front of multiple journalists who all say that there were no armed Palestinians present, just Israeli forces who fired at them, then that is enough enough for journalists and headline writers, not to mention clashes. Rest in power, Shireen Abu Akhle. Close quote. You are listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Commentators like Heather Digby Parton and others are already documenting lawmakers and lobbyists stating that their support for an abortion ban is just a part of their intent to eliminate reproductive rights entirely, including making contraception like IUDs and Plan B illegal and prosecuting miscarriage as manslaughter. It's hard to imagine that there are people who think the Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson ruling is only about abortion. But if there are, they can blame corporate media, at least in part, for years of downplaying and normalizing the scope and the scale of the assault on reproductive justice. From reducing everything to Roe, when that law has always left some potentially pregnant people out, to the current fascination with everything about this new ruling, who leaked it, how it's okay to protest it, everything except what it means and how we got to this point, much less how we can get away from it. FAIR's Julie Holler has been tracking this coverage for years. She's FAIR's senior analyst and managing editor, and she joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Julie Holler. Thanks, Janine. It's good to be here. Well, I hope no one thinks we're claiming that news media aren't covering the import of this ruling. Of course they are, and that's not the point. But when you look at the coverage now, and and over time, as you have, you just don't see news media rising appropriately to the occasion, would you say? I think you have to ask, what's the priority here for the corporate media in their coverage? And if you look, you know, the day that this leak happens, it's Obviously, front page news, it's at the top of the nightly newscasts. And yes, they talk about what's the impact going to be for people in this country. But the priority here, the top of the show, the first story that they tell is 
you know, about the leak itself, who might have done this, what is the impact on the Supreme Court, the relationships between the justices and their clerks. That's story number one. And then story number two asks, you know, what are the consequences for others? But even there, when you watch the nightly newscasts, it wasn't exactly what's the impact on people who might get pregnant. It's what is the impact on the clinics who serve them? What is the impact on the pro-choice and the anti-choice movements? Um, I didn't see the, the people themselves who would be most impacted getting interviewed on these shows. So I think, yes, there is some coverage of that impact. It is downplayed and it is sandwiched in between all of these other stories that are distracting attention from what is really the heart of what's going on here. Well, and then even a finding within a finding, I thought it was interesting in the piece that you wrote about the initial coverage of this leaked ruling, that one place when the question was asked, what's going to happen to, they said, to the women, many of them low income, who every year get abortions in states like Mississippi, Texas, places like that. The one time that was asked, it was asked of the leader of an anti-choice Group Exactly. Who gave a very reassuring answer. Oh, we will step up our efforts to take care of those people and make sure the outcomes are good. Well, you know what? That's not a satisfactory answer because that's not what's going to happen. You know, there could be some stepping up. And what's really going to happen is all of the research has shown that there will be more people dying. There will be greater poverty. There will be worse health outcomes all across the board for people. Well, I think that we have seen news media acknowledging that an overturning of Roe versus Wade will launch myriad other efforts at the state level. They talk about these trigger bills. But at the same time, these things didn't come out of nowhere. They've been building for years. And when you looked last year at coverage of these state campaigns, it seemed like media were not acknowledging them appropriately as they were brewing. Not at all. Not at all. The first four and a half months of last year, there were hundreds of state-level restrictions introduced in state legislatures. Many of them passed, and the national media just simply ignored them for the, for the most part. You got a few mentions here or there, very short, nothing in depth, um, nothing at all that gave a sense of the scale of what was going on. And it's not just last year. I, I feel like I've been writing this article since I started at FAIR, which was quite some time ago. I wrote this article 10 years ago when the right was ramping up state-level campaigns and laws to restrict abortion access. And we saw a sharp drop-off in national media coverage of abortion exactly when these things are happening. So the media will pay attention when there's a huge blockbuster story like the Supreme Court leak. Um, but during the, the steady drip drip of what's been happening for years, for decades, they've been just completely missing. Well, and when they do kind of refer to it in an offhand way, which if you just look up references to abortion, you will find lots of stories that kind of toss it off as an issue, as a political football. And one of the things that is often attached to it is the word divisive. And this is just to me like a drip, drip, drip of misinformation that people are consuming every time they hear a reference to abortion rights. I mean, divisive, it's like one of the media's favorite words, right? Um, and the thing that they're trying to, they're trying to put themselves outside of. 
they're going to stay neutral and objective, and they're just going to report both sides of the issue. And in fact, we don't have at all any sort of a balanced playing field here as they're trying to portray it. Overwhelmingly, even in stories that will describe it as a controversial or divisive issue, they'll then go on to say, oh, yes, seven in 10 people in the United States don't want Roe overturned. So if seven out of 10 is divisive, then we got to reconsider a whole lot of other <laughs> um, opinions. Exactly. Well, in terms of what we look for from a lot of times at FAIR, we think, what would we hope for from a free press in an aspiring democracy? And compare that to what we've got. What we have in the wake of this of this leak of this incredibly important we we hardly even begin to know how important ruling is. We're seeing, you know, free press supposedly defenders talking about how the most important thing to do is to not protest in a way that is uncivil. It's kind of bizarre, right? So, like the Washington Post, for instance, editorial boards complaining about the protesters outside of of the justices' houses, and actually endorsing having them be fined and or imprisoned for doing so. They use the word totalitarianism in this editorial, which, frankly, I searched their website. I could not find another editorial in which they use the word totalitarian or totalitarianism referencing any sort of domestic context, only with respect to protesters in front of Supreme Court justices' houses protesting against the fact that the government is trying to take away their rights to their own bodies. The Washington Post editorial board clearly has some priority issues, I would say. I often think it would be interesting to look up, you know, the way that news media talk about, for example, the civil rights movement or the marches with Dr. King, et cetera, and they would present themselves as being staunch defenders of civil disobedience and of the right to speak up when you know that the system is, is failing. And yet you have to judge them by how they act in the moment. Right. So we're, we're seeing what they what they choose to emphasize right now. And we should be paying attention, I guess. Absolutely. The Post did also have an editorial when the leak first came out, professing to be very concerned about this, saying that this was a blow to the court's legitimacy, that this is not what the court should be doing. But then the next time they editorialize about the issue, it's against the protesters. So it's like they're wanting to have it both ways. So one of the things that I know that you found when you looked at top tier or major media coverage last year in terms of the state level predations was that there were instances of attacks on reproductive rights that did seem to interest, for example, the New York Times. It just wasn't Texas. Right. It's easy for corporate media to raise these issues when they're speaking about some sort of official enemy of the United States. So if it's in Venezuela, if it's in China, that's front page news. It's not front front page news when it's Texas, when it's South Dakota, when it's something more local. It is the same as this totalitarian issue with the Washington Post. There are different standards applied to different parties. Well, finally, are there just, in terms of what we would like to see from, it's not like we, we know there's going to be lots of coverage. What would be helpful to add to it, or maybe who, I guess, is the question that could substantially improve the coverage of what could hardly be a more important issue? Well, first of all, absolutely, there needs to be much more front and center coverage of the 
potential consequences of this, the potential concrete consequences. You know, there have been a lot of studies done about what happens when reproductive rights are restricted or completely eliminated. And and that needs to be really front and center so people understand what this is really about. I mean, I, I sometimes I think about in that the, the nightly newscast, they, they let off their shows with their justice correspondence, their legal correspondence. And you just have to think, you know, what if corporate media could have rights correspondence instead of justice correspondence? Justice for them is an institutional idea of, you know, we're going to cover the Justice Department. That's your job. And if instead we could worry about the real world consequences, what is going on with people's rights in this country? If that could be what the media focused on, we would be in such a better place. We've been speaking with FAIR's own Julie Holler. You can find her work on media coverage of abortion rights, along with other things, at FAIR.org. Thanks so much, Julie, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. According to research cited by our next guest, the national out-of-stock rate for baby formula reached 43% last week. It's a story that should shock the conscience. People driving for hours to get to a place where they can possibly buy the food that their baby needs, or paying insane markup rates to people who are exploiting the shortage to price gouge. The question is, what do we do with that shock? One Texas newspaper responded with a no doubt well-intentioned op-ed beginning with the declaration that there are some things that shouldn't happen in America and the shortage of baby formula we're seeing is one of them. Well, it's past time to explore the implication that anything inhumane or harmful in this country must be an aberration, and that surely getting U.S. institutions back to their roots or back on track would solve things. We have, many of us, caught on to the fact that systems not designed for a multiracial democracy or for super powerful corporate actors... At this point, they're part of the problem and not part of the solution. And so a conversation about how to reorient or replace those institutions is one of the most significant conversations that journalists could possibly host or encourage or platform right now. That we don't see that is not about journalism itself, but just about journalism as it's usually done. On, in particular, the baby formula story, we're joined now with a different way of doing reporting on it by Tesneem Zakaria, researcher with Popular Information. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Tesneem Zakaria. Hi, Janine. Thanks for having me. Well, so you're a reporter presented with a reality, an important reality, but, you know, you can take it as supply chain shortage, or you can take it as people are unable to feed their children. It seems to matter the prism that you bring to a story the way you report it. So I just wonder... Where do you even start as a reporter in terms of what you think people need to know when they're confronted with a problem, which a lot of folks just kind of woke up to and read in the paper? Oh, my goodness, there's a shortage of of baby formula. Where do you start? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, unfortunately, you know, when you're confronted with a crisis like a baby formula shortage, it's something that's going to be right, like often by design. And so first, you know, there are immediate things that you can like point to as reasons that explain why supplies are low. So for instance, as you mentioned, like just supply chain disruptions, we've seen this across many industries. But then, you know, you also have a contamination problem at Abbott, which is one of the largest baby formula manufacturers. And, you know, in February of this year, the FDA issued a guidance warning consumers to avoid certain Abbott formula products from the company following the the death of two infants, I believe, and I think two others were also hospitalized. But those are just pieces to the story. There's also the reality that we live in an economy and live in a government that really provides little to no support or protection to new parents and children, for that matter. So I think when you're also kind of looking into these stories, it's important to kind of look and ask the question of who is really being impacted by this the most. And research shows that it's really low-income families who rely on formula, as well as families with babies who have special needs that need these products the most, and unfortunately have been hit the hardest. Well, it's interesting because you'll see outlets, you know, like the Washington Post saying, uh, U.S. baby formula leaves parents scrambling, low-income and rural parents most at risk, experts and organizations say. There's no part of that that's a lie, you know, it's it's all true, but it just, to me, it speaks to a, 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 I don't know, it just speaks to a number of failings. First of all, yeah, yeah, a lack of formula is going to leave parents scrambling. And yes, the people who are low income and rural and outside of things and marginalized are going to be hit worst. I just... There's a thing I call narrating the nightmare, you know, which is just Mm -hmm. why do you present it as news that the people who are most marginalized are going to be the most hurt? I just have a question about a style of journalism that presents that as new. News is meant to be something new, right? And this is not new. Definitely. I mean, the other thing you have to consider is that a lot of the audiences from these like mainstream outlets, right, are not necessarily the folks who are being hit the hardest by storage, right? Maybe they're going to a grocery store and they're noticing that like, hey, there's like, you know, a little less formula than there, than there normally is. But for the most part, some of these like elite uh, publications that have wealthy audiences can get formula when they desperately need it. Right. And then the the, the need to say that People who are marginalized or most at risk when there's a shortage and the fact that you need to add in the headline, experts and organizations say, as though that might be not just a generically acceptable mm-hmm. fact, but it might be like, depends on who you listen to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, too, that I find interesting is that I was curious to kind of learn more about how the lack of paid family leave in this country has also kind of contributed to this crisis. And unfortunately, you know, it was only really like a handful of pieces, you know, really just like kind of blog posts, just things on the fringe that really touched on the fact that, hey, a lot of moms in this country are unable to breastfeed. While, yeah, we may guarantee working moms breaks to pump milk, you know, this, this requires like adequate space, this requires expensive equipment. And as a result, this means that if 
pretty inaccessible. There's also no federal requirement that workers are paid while they're pumping. So for women, you know, who work in low-wage industries like fast food, pumping milk is just not affordable nor practical. Well, that's what I appreciate about the story is that it starts from a question of there's a baby formula shortage. How can people feed babies? And that's the Mm -hmm. question you start from rather than, well, let's talk to a CEO of a company that's involved in the supply chain. It changes everything when you consider things as a problem and try to think of it from the perspective of a person trying to navigate that problem. That seems to be just a categorically different way of doing reporting to me. Definitely, yeah. So when you went into journalism, and I did a little research, and I know that you were a college journalist and editor, and I know had an idea of the role that journalism plays in the world. How did that transition when you became then a working journalist, if I can ask? And do you think when you're talking to other college journalism students and they're trying to find a place in the world, what do you say in terms of, yeah, you should still do this. It still can make a difference. What do you say? I tell them that both unfortunately and fortunately, there are a lot of stories that are kind of brushed aside, right? There are a lot of voices that are swept underneath the carpet and there's just a lot happening that like you don't really you know necessarily notice and so i always really try to encourage folks to look beyond what they're seeing from just general headlines from your mainstream publications and to really ask whose voices are missing here right whose whose perspectives are missing here are we actually being holistic in our like investigation are we really looking at problems through a systemic lens the reality is i think sometimes uh, it's easy to kind of, you know, chalk up a certain problem to just two or three reasons and leave it at that, as opposed to taking on the more challenging task of being like, hey, as a journalist, you know, it's my responsibility to take this really complicated matter, like matter and try to distill it as best as I can to folks and kind of show people that like a lot of these things that we're seeing, right, this, I mean, even in the case of the baby formula shortage is tied to other issues, right? It's tied to the fact that Biden administration failed to pass their Build Back Better plan because you had this like multi-million dollar lobbying campaign from major, major corporations. And so that's kind of like a long-winded answer there. But, you know, I, I really believe in, you know, this systemic kind of, as you mentioned, like really just approaching things from a systemic point and just figuring out, finding the points where things kind of intersect and like shedding light on those because I think you can you actually end up touching on several issues with just one story. We've been speaking with Tasneem Zakaria from Popular Information. You can find their work on this story and others online at popular.info. Tasneem Zakaria, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspan. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find decades of shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.